Good morning. My name's Andy, uh, elder here at North Shore Church, and privileged to be able to serve our Lord and God. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our great creator, sustainer, a holy, holy God who desires good things, and gives us those, who blesses us with the grace and forgiveness through his Son, Jesus. We thank you. We ask that you would be here today with us. Let your Holy Spirit pour out upon us. Let Duncan deliver your words. Let him be blessed by you, that we might learn to love and to know our God more. Through Jesus Christ, Amen. This morning we're going to take a, a break away from the book of Judges just for one week. Um, we want to focus on something else for today. Today, as I'm sure we've already said, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So this is one day a year where many churches devote time on what the Bible has to say about unborn life and abortion and what a biblical response is and a biblical way to think about it is. <clears throat> the challenge in addressing these issues, this issue in particular, is not that the scriptures are in any way unclear about God's opinion of this. The challenge is the perception when you talk about this that the church has become a political arm of a political party. The perception is understandable in some ways because we live in a world where everything is politicized, don't we? However, those in the Baptistic tradition, and for those of you who didn't know, this is a Baptistic church, we have long cherished and honored the separation of church and state. This is an excuse for me to say this, which is important. Even though some have departed from that today, Thomas Jefferson worked in cooperation with Baptists to iron out his position on the separation of church and state. And so the pulpit in our tradition has not been a place to espouse, much less herald, political opinions or support political candidates or parties. Not part of our tradition. The Bible teaches us that for believers in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. And although it's perfectly appropriate, even desirable, for individual believers to become politically active if they choose, that's not in our tradition been extended to the pulpit ministry. 
One reason for this is because healthy believers don't come to church to be lectured on political issues. They come hungry for God and his truth that will help them live more for God's glory and for their own joy. And some political issues are so complicated that sincere believers can have differing opinions of how the Bible speaks to those issues. However, although issues like abortion and same-sex marriage are unquestionably political in our nation today, they are not only political issues, because in those cases they're first and foremost moral and spiritual issues. As we'll see, there are also very important theological issues involved in this, because they address basic and not complicated truths that are very close to God's heart and his plan for humanity. Because issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, to name only two, are far more than political issues. And because the scripture clearly speaks to those issues and calls believers to live in obedience to God's clear scriptural mandates related to them, those issues of morality, that means the church has no opportunity or no option to simply back away. We can't do that. It's not responsible. To put it differently, those who preach and teach in the church should not speak to issues because they are on the political right or left, but we must speak to issues that are morally right or morally wrong. Because sometimes the political and the moral issues overlap, it's easy to hear a message on abortion through a political filter, when for the believer, abortion is an issue of right and wrong, not right and left. So in the deafening din of legal and ethical and medical and racial and socioeconomic and political discussions that always surround this topic, the church must never compromise on this or other central moral issues where the Bible clearly commands us to behave in a certain way. Much of the evangelical church, for many reasons, can be sheepish and self-conscious on abortion. Many churches have never had a Sanctity of Life Sunday. Many of us are so concerned about being identified with abortion clinic bombers and other extremists who kill abortion providers, we've lost our voice. We don't want to be associated with them. Many of us have blushed with embarrassment as we've read editorials in the newspaper or other media outlets from people claiming to be Christians, but who are hateful and vitriolic and frankly do a shameful job of representing the truth of Scripture. All of that is on the screen for us. And so in the face of that, it's easy to be silent for fear of being grouped in with those people, some of whom are brothers and sisters. Another reason in the church, some in the church are silent on this issue is because many evangelical women have had abortions. The Guttmacher Institute tells us that 13% of all abortions are performed on evangelical Protestants. So please hear this. If you're here today and you've had an abortion, your sin is not unforgivable. It is not beyond the reach of God's grace. The devil may tell you that. The Bible doesn't. The blood of Jesus is more than strong enough to cleanse your life, to cleanse your memory, to cleanse your soul. And he can and he does bring healing to those who live in shame over this and other similar issues. Jesus died for this sin too. God is a redeeming God, 
And because he's a redeeming God, he can and he does use the things that we deeply regret in our past, and we all have them. He can use them for his glory and for our joy. So we need to just put that out there right at the first. Maybe more prevalent than any other reason the church often whispers on abortion is that we're prideful. I alluded to that earlier. Our sinful, fleshly response to hate with a vengeance is the idea that someone, somewhere, might think that we're intolerant, uninformed, judgmental, or fools. Our sinful flesh hates that more than just about anything else, and we fear humiliation and the rejection of man more than we fear God. And that, of course, is sin. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Pleasing man and being a servant of Christ, Paul says right there, are antithetical to one another. So there's some reasons. A completely unnecessary reason for the silence of the church is the fact that many believers simply don't have a firm grasp on the pertinent biblical truths relating to abortion. Most of us certainly have a a general notion about what the scriptures say and maybe have a few verses connected with that about the sanctity of human life. But if we're not grounded in the teaching of the scripture, which is our ultimate authority, of course, on the issue, we'll probably not have the strength of conviction we need to stand against a popular culture that assails with demonic force the sanctity and rights of the unborn. So this morning our goal is modest. We want to go over the main biblical truths and texts that can equip us to know with greater conviction God's will on this issue. As we know and internalize these truths, our desire is that we can, by God's grace, become appropriately bold to positively impact our world for Christ. So this morning we want to dig down into the roots of this issue and expose what are arguably its three main theological roots. Okay, let's look at the logical sequencing of biblical truth as it relates to abortion on these three points. The first and the most basic truth of the scripture is in the title for today, the sanctity of life, and that is we should say that human life is sacred and therefore taking it as a sin against God himself. Human life is sacred and therefore taking it is a sin against God himself. Taking a human life is sinful on several levels. It's illegal in any civilized country. It causes tremendous hurt to individuals, and it erodes the fabric of any culture. But those reasons are all secondary. The first and foremost reason Western civilization, for most of our history, has understood why taking a human life is wrong is because the Scripture repeatedly teaches that human life is sacred, because it is created in God's image. Genesis 1:27 says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human life is not like animal life, in spite of what you may hear on the nature programs. There is a huge qualitative difference. We may share 97% of our DNA with chimpanzees, But basic to what the Bible teaches about humanity is that we are essentially, in our essence, qualitatively different than animal or plant life. And the reason for that mainly is because only humanity bears the image of God. We alone bear the stamp of the divine. 
Theologians argue about the specifics of how that image of God is manifest in humanity, but that's not relevant for the discussion today. The bedrock truth is that human life, because it bears God's image, is therefore sacred. It is much more than a heartbeat. We are infinitely more, and I mean infinitely literally, infinitely more than a collection of animated bones and chemicals and fluids. The Bible teaches that God declares something is sacred based on its proximity to him. Okay? So, for instance, gold articles used in the temple worship were considered sacred because they were used for the worship of God. And so they were set apart and not used in other purposes. That's what sacred means. It's close to God, and so therefore it's sacred. This is the main reason why human life is immeasurably more than the sum of our physical, emotional parts. Because all human life is nothing less than an expression of the Creator Himself. In a way that no other created being or plant or animal is. In God's covenant with Noah, as Andy read to us, we're just going to read three verses. God tells Noah in verse 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The absolute ground of that prohibition against murder is the fact that man is created in God's image. Because God has uniquely invested himself in humanity by sharing his own image with us, that means that our lives uniquely have a sense of divine value. In the class of values, humanity is in the divine class of values. We bear the image of God. That means that to murder a human being is to do far more than end his or her earthly existence or commit a crime against the state or hurt their family and friends. To take a human life is to destroy the image of God in a person. It would be difficult to imagine a more direct assault on the person of God than to destroy one who bears his image. Being image bearers of God is such a central part of who we are as human beings. The fact that we bear human or God's image is incredibly, profoundly important. This is one reason why, for instance, when a third of the angels fell and chose to follow Satan, God immediately banished them. Do not collect go. Do not collect $200. You're eternally condemned. No chance for redemption. That's angels. That's very different than what happened when Adam and Eve fell, isn't it? The profound difference is his response to fallen humanity is because humans, unlike angels, as glorious as they are, humans, not angels, are created in God's image. When humanity fell, rather than condemn us, God instead initiated a plan to redeem fallen humanity, a plan that, of course, he knew would involve ultimately him killing his own son. I hope we can see the profound difference it makes to God that we're created in his image. It's crucial for us to know that the main reason that abortion is evil is because it's an attack not simply on a life that God created. Abortion is a personal attack on God. Because human life uniquely has transcended, that is divinely placed value, 
That means that to take a human life that greatly transcends the legal and natural and relational realms. If you kill a chicken or any other animal, that's not fundamentally a spiritual act. It is a natural act belonging to the natural realm. To take a human life created in God's image is a fundamentally spiritual crime against God because that life bore his image. And to destroy his image is a direct assault on himself. The second major biblical truth that specifically addresses abortion is an extension of the first one, and that is unborn life is sacred, and therefore abortion is taking a human life. Human life is sacred, but the pertinent question relating to abortion, of course, is how does the sanctity of human life relate to the unborn? Abortion is an assault on God only if the Bible speaks of the unborn child in the same manner it does to those of us outside the womb who are created in God's image. If the Bible taught that there was some sort of essential distinction between the unborn and those outside the womb, that that would leave open the possibility for an ethical abortion. However, the crystal clear witness of Scripture is that God makes no distinction. And in fact, repeatedly and with tremendous clarity, he teaches that the unborn bear the image of God just as much as the rest of us. And therefore, to kill the unborn is to destroy God's image in a person. In other words, life in the womb, the Bible teaches, as we'll see, is just as sacred as any human life. And there are several texts that teach this, but the one that does it probably most transparent is in Exodus chapter 21. We know that the Ten Commandments are in chapter 20, of Exodus. That's the basic Old Covenant stipulations of, the, of how to live before God. Well, in the following chapters after chapter 20, you see a bunch of other laws. And those laws were written to apply the Ten Commandments in more specific ways, in everyday life situations. For instance, the Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. That's the defining statutory law. You shall not murder. What is meant by murder? What if you accidentally kill someone? Or as it says in 21, what if your ox, through no fault of your own, gets loose and gores your neighbor to death? Is that a violation of the Sixth Commandment? Is the owner of that animal subject to the same penalty as if he committed premeditated murder? See, those are, those are nuanced questions, aren't they? Old Testament law speaks to just those kind of questions. And it does this through more specific laws addressing these kind of questions. These kind of laws are called case laws, and they're spelled out in the section following the Ten Commandments. And one of those case laws speaks directly to the issue of the life of the unborn. In Exodus 21, 22 to 25, we read, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and, as, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, so you get the, get the idea. The case law involves two men who are fighting. They're engaged in a physical altercation. One of them unintentionally, or maybe both of them, injure a pregnant woman who, as a result, has a miscarriage. Okay? 
So the text is a very strong statement against abortion in at least two ways. First, the Hebrew word, the ESV translates as the phrase, her children come out, or as the NASB translates, miscarriage, is a compound word, literally means child flows out. Child flows out. So the first part of the word is child. The second part of the word means flows out. Notice that the life that was in the womb, God in his law calls a child. Okay? Not a blob of tissue, a child. And this law is not limited to a certain stage of gestation. This penalty applies to both very early and late-term miscarriages. The NIV captures the spirit of the word by translating it, if she gives birth prematurely. Okay? The part of the Hebrew word meaning child here is yeled. That word is used 70 other times in the Old Testament. In each case, it is a very common word for child. There are no other usages for this word where you can find it out here. There's no distinction in the, ch- in the text between the child in the womb and the child outside the womb. Same word is used for each. Okay? We see a second argument against abortion from this text in t- the two specific contingencies stated in the law. Maybe you caught those. The first contingency is if the woman who's struck and has a miscarriage, but there is no harm. Okay? That word harm is more literally translated if no mischief happens, which is a way of saying if the mother or the child is not injured or does not die. Okay? So don't miss this. The contingency speaks to harm, injury or death to either the mother or the child. So if there's a premature birth because of the accidental striking of this woman, but no resulting injury or death occurs to the mother or the baby, then the law says the matter goes to the courts, and then they decide what the damages will be based on the details of the case. That's the first contingency. The second contingency goes to the very heart of the abortion discussion. It says in verse 23, but if there is harm or if mischief happens, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. There's a big difference here. The two men are struggling, and the blow is unintentionally struck to the pregnant woman, and either the mother or the unborn child dies or is injured. The guilty party is subject to commensurate punishment. Eye for eye, burn for burn, tooth for tooth. And in the case of the death of the mother or the child, that means they'll be executed. Okay? That is God's value or God's perspective on the value of unborn life. Right there. He absolutely equates it with life outside the womb. The fact that Old Testament law here calls the perpetrator to forfeit his own life for the life of the unborn means the value of the unborn is considered equal to that of the adult. The penalty for killing an unborn child is the same as for killing the pregnant mother. But that's not all. What's even more powerful about this is what we read in a previous statute that bears on this one. In verses 12 to 13, it says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, that is in the case of accidental death, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Do you hear in this law, unintentional killing is very different than intentionally killing someone. That's the same way it is in our legal system. Premeditated murder has a penalty that's very different than manslaughter. Okay? 
If a Hebrew were to kill someone accidentally, according to the law, he was shielded from the vengeance of the, survive, or the, of the, of the dead person's friends or family. And the way that he was shielded or protected is because he had or she had the opportunity to go to what was called a city of refuge. There were a number of these that were designated throughout Israel. That, in that city, that was a place where they could go and run and be assured of protection until a court ruled on their case. They couldn't be hurt or injured in the city of refuge. There is clearly protection in the case of an alleged accidental killing. But remember, the statute in verses 22 to 25 that speaks to the death of a pregnant woman or an unborn child, in the case of the two men fighting, that's an accidental death. Okay? The man's assault of the woman described that described in law, is not intentional. It's incidental to the fighting. Yet the statute says, in the case of accidental death to the pregnant woman or her unborn child, the statute calls for the death penalty for either fatality. Do you understand where this is going? That means that not only is the unborn child given the same legal consideration as the rest of us, but in God's law, the child is actually given more protection, along with the pregnant mother, because their accidental death brings the death penalty, unlike everybody else's death. The point again is God's law, which represents his will and his heart on this matter, recognizes the unborn child to be of absolutely equal value to human life and is afforded even more legal protection, not less. Let that just sink in for a minute and then reflect on how different that is than the laws of our country since 1973 when abortion on demand became legal. This text is so clear that if it were the only one in the Bible that speaks to this issue, because it's so unambiguous and it directly addresses the issue that we wonder about, it alone would settle the matter as to where God stands on abortion. We wouldn't need anything else. It's right here in the law. But there are other texts. In fact, there are many other texts which also speak powerfully to this. In Jeremiah 1.5, God is calling Jeremiah to be a prophet, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God says to Jeremiah, I knew you. Not, I knew you would be born. I knew you before I formed you in the womb. Before Jeremiah was conceived, God had already called him as a prophet to the nations. So how could God have possibly known Jeremiah as a prophet without knowing him as a person before he was born, a person whose life is sacred and worthy of protection. David makes the same point. We've all read it in Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay? Just as our human genetic material is present with us in conception, sin is also present at our conception. Again, God doesn't know anything about a blob of tissue or euphemisms like uterine content or product of conception. Another group of texts supporting the sanctity of the unborn include those like Psalm 139.13. David praises God, saying, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Okay? Very similar is Job 10, and he's complaining about, about his suffering, but you can hear what he says about his understanding of God's creation of him. It says, Your hands fashioned me and made me, 
and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and you will return me to the dust. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. Do you hear the poetic images the inspired writers David and Job used to describe the creation process in the womb? Okay? In the womb, God is at work fashioning, shaping, molding like clay, clothing, and knitting a human being. Now, those are obviously metaphorical. God doesn't use knitting needles. But the point is to say, in the most graphic terms, that the creation process occurring in the womb is not at its core fundamentally biological. It is intentionally spiritual and it's personal. Creation can surely be explained biologically, but the Bible teaches that the biological process in the womb of the mother is a result of the personal creative work of the Creator. So when you look at a photograph of one of those amazing 4D ultrasonic images of an unborn child, the caption at the bottom of the image for anybody with eyes to see is God at work. God is directly, he's personally superintending the creation process in every womb. John Stott says, the growth of the fetus is neither haphazard nor automatic, but a divine work of creative skill. Do you hear the theological implications for abortion within that context? These texts tell us an awful lot about what God must feel about abortion. This, these texts mean that from God's perspective, Abortion is the violent barging into his art studio and taking one of his masterpieces, these fearfully and wonderfully made creatures, and ripping up his canvas and throwing the pieces into a medical waste container with him looking on. It's charging into his sculpting area and smashing his brilliant work at his feet. But again, it's even more arrogant than that because that mutilated creation is not only his personal handiwork, it bears his very image. He's seeing part of himself being destroyed in front of his feet. What do you suppose God thinks about that? What do you think about that? Well, it's even more powerful when you consider that that immeasurably arrogant act against the creator of the universe in our nation occurs 3,000 times a day. And since 1973, it's occurred about 58 million times. Let me give some perspective on that. The Vietnam War, we lost about 58,000 troops, which means unborn children a thousand times more than all the people we've lost in Vietnam We've lost to abortion a thousand times more. That logically leads us to the third and final scriptural truth about abortion. That is, this shedding of innocent blood brings judgment from God. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. If an unborn child is not considered innocent, then nothing is. <laughs> One of the seven deadly sins in Proverbs 6, sins that are uniquely detestable, detestable to God, is the shedding of innocent blood. The Bible is very clear that abortion brings the judgment on a nation, and what is even more sobering is if we read Romans chapter 1, which we talked about a bit last week. You may recall last week from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, is being revealed, the NIV says, 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, like the truth about the unborn. Although the wrath of God clearly has a future element to it, Paul here says that right now the wrath of God is being revealed against sin like the sin of abortion. And the way that Paul says that God's wrath is being revealed, he repeats three times in verse 24, 26, and 28. That means it's important. And the way in which God is, his, reve- his revealed will is being given right now is in the fact, it says three times, God giving people up to their sins that they want to commit. That's what he says three times. So in other words, the wrath of God is seen today when God removes his restraining influence from a culture and allows people to sin without restraint. That's the wrath of God. Do you know what that means as it relates to our culture? That means that Roe v. Wade was not only a disastrous landmark legal decision, it carries with it an unseen spiritual dimension that should make us shudder. Because in the spiritual realm, it was something far more serious. It was an expression of God's present tense wrath, a giving up of our nation to its sinful and selfish desires. Do we hear this? What this means is the removal of the legal restraint on abortion by the Supreme Court is not simply a fictional discovery of the right to privacy in the 14th Amendment. It is also an expression of the present-day wrath of God on our nation, according to Romans 1. The wrath of God is not only coming to America someday, Paul says it's here. And one expression of that is the fact that we have abortion on demand that's legal. So what do we do about this? First, we plead for God's mercy. Not only from the coming wrath, but also the mercy that he has that can enable us by God's grace to put back in place both the moral and the legal barriers to abortion. And we need to pray for both. Because the Supreme Court can switch, and they can make a decision outlawing Roe v. Wade, which means it'll go back to the states, and many of the states will make it legal anyway. But unless the moral barrier is also put back up again, then as soon as the configuration of the court changes, the law will just change again. So the moral barrier and the legal barrier to abortion have to be put back up so that we as a nation would no longer be given over to our sin. Plead for God's mercy. Second, ask God to continue to show his heart on this. I trust maybe you've seen some of his heart today from the scriptures. We have to be God-centered in this. And unless that happens, we see that the pro-life cause is infinitely more than a social cause or concern. Unless we're God-centered, it's going to be another charity to get involved in. This is not about cause. It's not about a law. It's not about Supreme Court. It's about God. Ask him to forgive you if your heart on this hasn't been where his is and pray for him to give it to you. Third, when God gives you that heart by his grace, do something to express it. And the opportunities, thankfully, are many. Volunteer for pro-life organizations like Bay Area Pregnancy. Take home a few baby bottles today. There's still many out there. Bring them back filled with money. Brave the cold this afternoon and attend the Sanctity of Human Life rally here in Menominee. Finally, again, if you've had an abortion or influenced someone else to have an abortion, call it what it is. Call it murder. And confess it to God 
and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our God is great in mercy and you can find complete forgiveness and complete healing in him. Proverbs 24:11 says, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering toward slaughter. May God give us the grace to know these biblical truths about abortion and live changed lives in response to them for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things to hear. We would, we would just rather not think about these things, at least I, I would sometimes. And yet, God, they're so clear in your word, and we live in a culture, we live in a nation that is trampled all over you, and this is one of the more manifest ways. God, I pray that we would not be judgmental. I pray that we would not um, go out of here uh, looking down on other people. Father, we're sinners. The only reason we haven't had an abortion is because of your grace. And so, God, we're no better than anybody else, but, God, you have given us your truth. And so, Father, in your grace and by your Spirit, help us to know what to do. Father, first and foremost, help us to be a people who are regularly crying out to you in prayer, pleading for mercy for our country. Help us to be people who are regularly reading these statistics and weeping because of what they mean to you. Father, give us your heart on this for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray, amen.